There are different types of roads. Dirt roads, paved roads, country roads, toll roads, two-lane roads, superhighways, back alleys, even cobblestone streets. There are also famous roads. Pennsylvania Avenue, Peachtree Street, Sunset Boulevard, Park Place and Boardwalk, even the Yellow Brick Road. There are even famous roads in the Bible, the road to Damascus, the Emmaus Road, the road to Gaza. But of all the roads, the most famous in history is the Via Della Rosa. This is the path that Jesus walked from Pilate's Judgment Hall to a hill called Calvary to the tomb of a rich man named Joseph. The term Via Della Rosa is Latin for the way of sorrows, and indeed it was. In Mark chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus was scourged with a flagellum or a whip. 39 lashes reduced his torso to ground chuck. He was cut down from the post and his body fell into a pool of his own blood. Some victims died from the beating. Jesus' ordeal was just beginning. Verse 16 is where we pick it up tonight. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. This was the Roman military headquarters, sometimes called the Fortress of Antonio. It was situated on the northeast corner of the Temple Mount. And they called together the whole garrison. Now realize, these soldiers just don't care. They're on assignment from Italy. Their families are across the ocean. They hate Jerusalem and they despise the Jews. Every day they're stationed in Jerusalem. These men have had to watch their backs. They become targets for terrorism. The locals see them as oppressors and try to make their lives difficult. To them, Jesus is just a criminal. He's just a Jewish punching bag on which they can take out some of their frustrations. They respond to Jesus' claims to be king. Well, we'll give this king the royal treatment. Jesus becomes the brunt of their pain. Before the day is done, he'll become the brunt of the whole world's pain. Well, verse 17 tells us, And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. This was actually part of a mocking game. It was called the king's game, that soldiers would play with their prisoners during their idle moments. When you go to the Lithostrata, the pavement there in Jerusalem, you can actually see the game sketched out in the stones. This is what they did to Jesus. They played a game with him. First, they adorned him with a royal robe and a crown of thorns. Sadly, the only crown Jesus ever wore on earth was the mock crown fashioned for him here. The Greek word translated thorns means briars. These were thick. These were sharp little daggers that penetrated Jesus' brow. Blood is now streaming down our Lord's forehead. His eyes and his cheeks are full of blood. Verse 19, Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. Imagine spitting in the face of God. We long to gaze into his face, don't we? Not spit on him. This is at least the third time that Jesus was struck after being arrested. First was at Caiaphas' house. There they slapped him in the face with the palms of their hands. Second was in the fortress. Before Pilate turned him over to his executioners, he had Jesus scourged. Now the overseers of his crucifixion place a crown of thorns on his head and hammer it in with a stick. And then, bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Of course, it was mock worship. It was Roman ridicule. But understand, by the time Jesus gets to the cross, his face now is deformed. It looks like that of a heavyweight boxer who's just gone 15 rounds. Or maybe the bloody victim of an airplane crash. Our Lord's torso, even his face, or a whelp, a mass of bleeding tissue. As a matter of fact, there is a prophecy 
Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, that quotes Jesus in advance. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now, this is a part of our Lord's suffering that none of the gospel writers record. Yet Isaiah predicted. Jesus' beard would be plucked out. And it may have happened here. I remember when my two oldest kids were just tots. I sported a beard in those days. And I can remember that they would stick their little fingers, their tiny fingers in my beard, and they would exercise their clutching reflex. They'd grab a handful of beard and they'd yank. Of course, they never came close to jerking it out of my face, but it still hurt. Imagine, though, what they did to Jesus. The soldiers pulled out Jesus' facial hair by the root. They plucked out his beard as if you'd pluck a chicken of its feathers. They disfigured his face. Understand, if a funeral had been held for Jesus, the family would have requested closed casket. When his body was finally taken from the cross, it was so maimed, so mutilated, so distorted, it looked more like a monster than a man. In fact, Isaiah 52 verse 14 predicts his visage was marred more than any man. Literally, he no longer resembled a, a human. This was what they did to our Lord. John 19 verse 5 tells us that at this point, Pilate presented Jesus to the Jews. And he cried in Latin, Eki homo, or behold the man. I think Pilate was hoping the frightful sight of Jesus' suffering would pacify the bloodthirsty mob. Instead, they called out again for him to be crucified. Verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to be crucified. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, crucifixion victims were forced to carry their own cross. The patibulum, or the cross beam, was strapped to the victim's shoulders. It usually tipped the scales at around 100 pounds. The victim was accompanied by four soldiers, two in front and two in behind. He was paraded through the streets. And the soldiers would always take the long way around to the crucifixion site. They wanted as many folks as possible to see the consequences of Roman justice. By this point, Jesus is exhausted. He's coming off a sleepless night. He's hungry. He's dehydrated. He's lost a tremendous amount of blood. That's why his body suddenly buckles and collapses under the weight of this beam. Today, when you walk the Via Della Rosa, the street is always congested. Pedestrians, shop owners, street vendors, they hurry and scurry about. This was the way it was in Jesus' day. Here, imagine in your mind, the Lamb of God is turning the bend. Heaven is on the edge of its seat. Angels shudder in horror. Demons squeal with glee. And it seems this Simon is headed to the coffee shop for a bagel and an espresso. It just proves that the most important moments in our lives are not always the ones we see coming, that we can plan for in advance. Sometimes we don't choose, we get chosen. And this is what happened to Simon. We're told he was from Cyrene in North Africa. That makes him an original Libyan, by the way. He was probably a Jew on Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This Simon was a robust man. He had a large build, a strong frame. This was why he was picked out of the crowd. Imagine now, he's walking down the narrow street. He's minding his own business when he sees these four soldiers surrounding a frail, bloody figure trying to balance a wooden beam. Suddenly, Simon feels a sharp, the sharp end of a spear poking into his shoulder. A soldier pulls him from the crowd, pushes him over, and plops this beam on his back. Again, Simon was out for a bagel. All he was thinking about was grape jam or apple jam. Now he's bearing a cross for the Son of God. 
who is bearing a cross for the sins of the whole world. It just goes to show you never know what a day will bring. And notice in verse 21, Mark refers to Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, since Mark wrote his gospel to the church at Rome, the Romans must have known these men. He mentions them here. In fact, if you turn to Romans 16, verse 13, there is a man named Rufus and his mother. They get noted as members of the church in Rome. It's assumed that Simon's encounter with Jesus led to his conversion, that he returned to Cyrene, North Africa. He shared his faith. He led his family to Jesus. The family later migrated to Rome. A vibrant church sprang up in North Africa, and it was probably originally from Simon's testimony. Again, like Simon, you and I never know when we'll encounter Jesus in a special way. God's plans for us often interrupt our own plans, do they not? And here Simon stumbles onto something far bigger than himself when he least expects it. His life rubs up against eternity. Hey, when God interrupts your plans to involve you in his, I hope you're smart enough like Simon to trust him and to obey. Well, Verse 22 identifies the site of the crucifixion. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It happened just north of the city. Today, by the Damascus Gate, there's a stone outcropping that resembles a skull. The shape was even more pronounced in the days of Jesus. Golgotha was along the road that ran from Jerusalem to Damascus. You see, Roman crucifixions were intended to strike fear in the locals. The site was usually alongside a congested thoroughfare, so as many people as possible would see. Today, Golgotha is just behind a bus station. It's still along a thoroughfare. Imagine, though, your morning commute down Highway 78, the Stone Mountain Freeway. Imagine if one day you drove down Stone Mountain Freeway and you saw lining the streets crucified criminals all the way down. This is what the Romans did. They would line up their crucifixions down the road so that people would see. They were after the shock effect. Our Lord Jesus was crucified either at the bottom of Golgotha, next to the busy road, or on the top of the hill so people could see from a distance. But he was, done, he was crucified openly so that others would see and become afraid of Rome. The first step in the crucifixion was to offer the victim a painkiller. Verse 23. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. This was our, nar our narcot narcotic. It was in intended to knock the edge off the pain. Notice Jesus refused. We'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, just realize there was no volume for the Savior. Verse 24. And when they crucified him, the cross was the most hideous torturous form of execution ever devised. Josephus, the first century historian who saw firsthand his share of crucifixions, called the cross the most wretched of deaths. The Roman historian Cicero once wrote, And what shall I call crucifixion? So abominable a deed can find no word adequate enough to describe it. Every aspect of the cross was designed to mock and maim, then kill. Torture, not just execution, was the goal. If you were standing before a live crucifixion, you would shiver in horror. You would turn your head. It would turn your stomach. For weeks afterwards, you would have nightmares. In 1968, the ancient bones of a 26-year-old victim of crucifixion were discovered at a Jewish settlement north of Jerusalem. This rare archaeological find shed light on how crucifixions were performed at the time, and it confirmed many of the details we read about in the Bible. You see, the victim was laid on the ground, and seven-inch iron spikes were driven through his wrists into the crossbeam. The beam was then lifted and attached to a standing post. 
The victim's legs were pushed up so that his heels were situated under his buttocks. A single spike was driven through both heels. Crosses in Palestine were made of olive wood, and since olive trees were never large, the cross's height was just a few inches larger, taller than the victim. Medical doctor human uh, Truman Davis, he gives a description of the agonizing pain that the victim would have endured once he had been nailed to the cross. It's a long read, but it's worth it. He writes this, As his body slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself up in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and breathe in life-giving oxygen. The victim endures hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. He experiences a crushing pain deep within the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids reach a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death. Finally, he can allow his body to die. Often, I've asked the question, why crucifixion? It's one thing for God to die, but why did God's Son die the most hideous form of death ever invented? Why didn't God send His Son at a time when lethal injections were the mode of execution? Or even the electric chair? Or a means that was quick and easy and painless? And the answer is that our pain, nothing about, that our sin, that nothing about our sin is quick or easy, or painless. You see, our sin grieves the heart of God. Sin not only breaks God's laws, but far worse, it breaks His heart. In God's eyes, sin deserves the most brutal death imaginable. Jesus died on the cross because our sin demanded such a death. This is why He refused the pain-numbing potion. He took the full brunt of our sin. See, the cross teaches us two truths. One, the severity of our sin, and two, the sincerity of God's love. Though our sin demanded a steep price, Jesus paid it in full. It shows that He loves us. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you're ever wondering how much God loves you, look to Jesus. He loves you that much. Once there was a little boy, he went to church with his dad. The church had a cross in the front of the sanctuary. And so the little boy asked, Dad, what's the meaning of that cross? The father replied, Son, Jesus died when people nailed him to a cross. The little guy's eyes grew as big as saucers. He gazed around at the church members that morning. He said, You mean these people? And if the dad had answered, he could have said, Yes, son. These people who crucified Jesus, the Jews, they played a part. The Romans, they also played a part. But who really crucified Jesus? The answer is you and me. Our sin drove the nails into his hands and feet. 
It's been said, every man is born with a fistful of nails and he dies with his hands empty. In other words, we're all guilty. Verse 24 tells us the Roman soldiers, tells us that the Roman soldiers who supervised Jesus' crucifixion, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Imagine this. The Holy Lamb of God, suffering for the sin of all mankind. And how do the soldiers respond? These callous soldiers, they laugh and they mock and they gamble. They shoot craps for his cloak as Jesus dies for them. Now it was the third hour, or literally nine o'clock in the morning, and they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. The Romans always hung a wooden plaque called a titleless over the victim's head. It listed his crimes. John tells us what was written on the plaque over Jesus' head, that it infuriated the Jewish leaders, the king of the Jews. They didn't like that. They appealed to Pilate, you remember, to have it changed, but he refused. In the end, the Jews couldn't silence Jesus' true identity. He was the king of the Jews. And with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. You remember one of the robbers mocked Jesus. The other pleaded for mercy and was forgiven. Verse 28, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That scripture is Isaiah 53, verse 12. It predicted that the king of the universe would die a criminal's death alongside common thieves. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. See, these mockers, they wanted a Christ, but not a crucified Christ. See, Jesus proved he was the Messiah by going to the cross. But to the Jews, being king meant coming down off the cross. Jews at the time wanted miracles, not a sacrifice. And you know, I'm afraid the same is true today. People want heroes, not saviors. See, a hero champions the human spirit. A hero spotlights human potential and makes us all feel good about ourselves. A hero becomes the poster boy for the good in man. But a crucified Christ means we have a problem. It means all is not right with the human race. The crucifixion isn't an example of human potential, but of human depravity. People today, just like the Jews of old, they want a Christ, but without a cross. Only humble, repentant people who realize their sin and their need for forgiveness want a Christ that's hanging from a cross. Verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, which was noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Imagine midnight at midday for three hours, from noon until 3 p.m., darkness blanketed the land. Remember, when Jesus was born, a star, a light appeared in the heavens. Now when Jesus dies, the sky turns pitch black. In other words, God turns out the lights. And here's the reason why, verse 34. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. 
See, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, the street language of the time. These aristocratic priests, they were thinking Hebrew, and they mistook his words as a cry for Elijah instead of for God. This cry was an expression of the alienation that Jesus experienced on the cross with his Father in heaven. In John 8, verse 29, Jesus had said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Imagine that. Imagine being able to say that. I always do the things that please the Father. Since the beginning of time, Jesus had lived in perfect harmony with his Father in heaven. But now, suddenly, on the cross, Jesus feels the sting of rejection. He feels what he has never felt before from eternity past. The sin of the world is suddenly thrust on his sacrificial shoulders as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was a spotless lamb. Morally, his heart was as tender as a baby's soft, sensitive skin. He was innocent. It was a shock for him to bear a single speck of sin. Imagine the piercing fright, the staggering horror when he felt the sin of the whole world rush upon him all at once. The sin of the rapist, the serial killer, the child molester, the secret gossip, all man's sin came crashing in on his innocent shoulders. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 explains the plan of God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was God. He never ceased being God. He lived with the Father in warm, unbroken fellowship from the beginning. From before the beginning, nothing had interrupted the Godhead's holy harmony. And yet for this moment, the Son of God became a forsaken child. God became separated from God so that Jesus, through Jesus, we could be restored. Verse 37. <clears throat> and Jesus cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple veil was a partition it was 60 feet tall, it was 30 feet wide, it was 10 feet thick. It took 300 proofs, priests, 300 priests to even move this, this curtain. It was heavy, it was impenetrable because it represented mankind's sin. Access to God was blocked by our sin. The veil represented that. But on the cross, the debt of sin was paid in full. And as a result, this huge veil was torn from top to bottom. It was as if a knife from heaven fell and cut the veil in half. In verse 38, we're told specifically, it was cut from top to bottom. Why is that? You see, our salvation is a top-down proposition. It's not a bottom-up. It's initiated by God's grace, not by our efforts. When the veil was torn, God was declaring an open house. From then till now, nothing separates us from the presence of God but the person of Jesus Christ. Today, the door, the door is wide open. We all can come boldly to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Realize what happened that day softened hard, calloused men. This man had been to war. This man had seen his share of tragedy. And yet there was something about Jesus that struck him. He knew this man was different. Even Jesus' own executioners were transformed this day into humble, repentant believers. And you know, he continues to have that kind of an effect on men. The most calloused heart becomes putty in his hands. And not only are stubborn men transformed by Jesus, so are sinful women. Notice verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We know Mary Magdalene. She had a shady past. She was a prostitute possessed by seven demons. Yet she was delivered by Jesus and remained loyal to the end. Which brings us to verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a council member, we're told. Why didn't he speak up at the trial? We don't know. Joseph had been a secret disciple to this point. Now he takes courage. And he goes public. And there comes a time when all secret disciples are challenged to step up and become witnesses. Victims of crucifixion often lasted days before their death. This is why Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Now these ladies will return on Sunday to finish dressing Jesus' body for burial. Here we're told that they paid special attention to the tomb's exact location. And this is an important point. For there are still skeptics today who try to discredit Jesus' resurrection by saying that the tomb was empty, not because he rose from the dead, but because the women went to the wrong tomb. Notice though, Mark, though, he says that that was impossible since the girls made special note of its location ahead of time. He includes that detail. Isn't that interesting? I suppose if men had been first to the tomb, we might assume they got lost. But women are experts at navigating directions. And so we we safeguard them going. It was women. They had to go to the right place. They made note of it ahead of time, and they followed directions exactly. The only viable explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus was alive, and and it wasn't needed any longer. Chapter 16 Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Because of the special Sabbath, the women couldn't properly prepare Jesus' corpse ahead of time. They had hurriedly laid his body in the tomb. Now they returned, though, to finish the job. And so very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now notice these women are worried about a dilemma that has already been solved. Notice this. The tomb is empty. Yet we often do this very same thing, don't we? We worry about things that have already been solved. As a matter of fact, the fact that Jesus is alive means that he's able to solve problems before we even face them. We need to trust him. Verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. On my first trip to Israel, I went to a place called the King's Tomb. This particular site features a tomb where you see a downward channel cut into the opening of the grave. A stone was placed at the top of the channel and wedged in place. To close the tomb, the wedge was knocked out of the channel and gravity pulled the stone down into the place over the mouth of the tomb. Here the Greek word translated rolled. They rolled, the stone had been rolled away. That word rolled, it means to roll up a slope, to roll up an incline. 
In other words, when this stone was rolled away, it wasn't only pushed back off the mouth of the grave. It was rolled right back up that channel. It was rolled up a hill. And realize the stone was not moved to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. From other verses, we know the risen Christ wasn't bound by natural laws. He could have walked right through the stone if he had wanted to. But the stone needed to be removed so the world could see inside and know that the tomb was empty. And verse 5 tells us what the women saw when they looked in. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. This was an angel appearing as a man. Now Mark only mentions one angel. Luke says that there were two. But I like what one commentator suggests. He writes, The angels were probably only those who elected to be seen. Many more, perhaps thousands more, watched. For as we're told in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, these are things which angels desire to look into. Angels marvel at God's grace and His plan for salvation. I think there were probably millions of eager angels all looking on at the empty tomb. And listen to the first words out of the mouth of the angel, verse 6. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Jesus is alive. And then he says, See the place where they laid him. In other words, don't take our word for it. Come, examine the evidence. And this was still the invitation 30 years later when Paul witnessed to King Agrippa. You remember what Paul told him? He said, the king knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things concerning his death and resurrection escape his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Understand from its outset, Christianity wasn't based on philosophical arguments or metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, but on a historically verifiable event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Examine it. Test it for yourself. Examine the records. It's the most verifiable, it's the most sure and certain fact of history. There's only one plausible explanation for the empty tomb, and that is that its former resident rose from the dead. Even secular historian, a man named Thomas Arnold once wrote, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God hath given that Christ died and rose again from the dead. The angels say, come and see. But then he says, Go and tell. And this is our calling as Christians. Don't just sit on what you've seen. Spread the news that he is alive. Notice he says specifically, go tell his disciples and Peter. Don't you love that? And Peter. Peter gets special attention. Oh, Jesus loved all his disciples. But none had fallen harder and faster Then old cocky Peter, Peter boasted of his loyalty and then denied the Lord three times. By the time the cock crowed twice, Peter was overcome with guilt and he went out and wept bitterly. Yet as soon as Jesus is back from the grave, he's already thinking of his failed disciple and Peter. And isn't this Jesus' heart toward us? He loves us. He knows our frailties. But he has grace and mercy, and he's willing to work with us still. I like one commentator's rendition of the angel's words. He said, be sure and tell Peter that he gets to bat again. I like that. God still had a plan for Peter. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. When the women first saw the angel, they were afraid. Now they're still afraid, but it's a different kind of fear. It was a good fear. It's now purifying fear. 
And I love the fact that the three women who were first to the empty tomb were also the last to leave the cross. Think about that for a moment. They were the ones who had accompanied Jesus' corpse. And I think there's a lesson here. Those who share in his burdens are the most likely to share in his blessings. His power is granted to those who understand his passion. Remember, it was Paul who longed for, in Philippians 3 verse 10, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but not just that, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Now, according to John's gospel, Mary was hanging around the tomb by herself when Jesus appeared to her privately. At first, she thought Jesus was the gardener. But do you remember what tipped her off differently? What what identified Jesus? It was how he spoke her name. When he said, Mary, she responded, oh, Rabboni. She recognized him. When men spoke Mary's name, Hey, Mary, baby. It was the user. When the neighbors spoke her name, oh, that's Mary. It was the judger. But when Jesus spoke her name, he conveyed love. It was the way Jesus said Mary that brought her peace. Listen, God, listen. Jesus may be speaking your name tonight. And Jesus came to Mary. After he came to Mary, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Now you'd think this report would dry their tears, would cause them to jump for joy. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Oh my. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Luke chapter 24 gives the full account of what occurred on the road to Emmaus. At first, they didn't know it was Jesus walking with them. Their eyes were blinded. He taught them a Bible study, how the Scripture spoke of Messiah. Finally, their eyes were opened by the way Jesus handled the bread. That's when he vanished. Luke tells us, though, their hearts burned within them while they were with Jesus. Jesus can take the cold embers of a discouraged heart, and he can strike a fresh passion, a fresh fire. These men, like Mary, they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. What's with these hard-hearted disciples? They don't believe anybody. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. The eyewitness reports were certain and trustworthy. They should have been believed. Understand this. So often, it's not that a person can't believe. It's that they won't believe. They lack willingness, not evidence. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is called the Great Commission. It was Jesus' final marching orders to his disciples. Go into all the world. Don't stay where it's familiar and where it's comfortable. Go and preach. Don't remain silent. And preach the gospel, not man-made traditions or human wisdom or pop psychology. Preach the gospel and preach to every creature, not just folks like you, but to everybody. And then Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, everyone knows the difference between a primary article of clothing and a wardrobe accessory. You ladies know this, don't you? Sure. A hat is a nice accessory. But you can take it, you can leave it. You don't need to wear a hat. It's an elective. Nobody's going to be up in arms if you don't wear the hat. But the pants is a definite must. you got to wear the pants. 
And notice the same distinction in verse 16. Faith is mandatory. Belief is mandatory. Baptism is an accessory. Baptism is a nice statement. It shines a light on our faith. But baptism is an essential. See, it's not the guy who fails to be baptized that gets condemned in this verse. It's the guy who doesn't believe. The thief on the cross was never baptized, but he was promised paradise because of his faith. Baptism is the accessory. Belief is the necessity. What did I say? Baptism is the accessory. Belief is the necessity. Good. And speaking of accessories, Jesus lists a few more accessories to our faith in verse 17. And these signs will follow those who believe. He gives a list. But notice what Jesus says. These signs will follow. Notice we're not told to follow miraculous signs. It's the signs that follow our faith. Understand, nobody saw more wonders, more miracles than the Hebrews who exited Egypt, yet they refused to believe. Some of the Jews who saw Jesus' miracles end up screaming, crucify him. It's not signs and wonders that produce faith. They're the result of faith. They follow faith. Faith grows as a result of us feeding our souls on God's word. But signs do follow real faith. Walk by faith, trust God's spirit, and God will do some miraculous stuff. Jesus gives us examples. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Walk by faith and demons flee. You'll praise God with spirit-inspired language. You'll become immune to poisonous snakes and deadly poisons. You'll pray for the sick and they'll be healed. Hey, these things follow genuine faith. But understand the context of these verses. Remember, Jesus is giving his disciples their marching orders. This is in the context of the Great Commission. He's telling them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when you do, God will work supernaturally. These verses speak of protection for missionaries. See, missionaries in pagan lands frequently encounter the occult. Jesus assures them of the power to expel demons. When they run into foreign languages, they can count on the gift of tongues to help. Snakes and contaminated water fester in jungle environments. But Jesus promises his missionaries supernatural protection. In the outback, where medicinal remedies are unavailable, lay hands on the sick and trust in the power of prayer. As a matter of fact, when you survey the book of Acts, you'll see where all these signs followed the early church. Demons were cast out. Tongues were spoken. In Acts 28, you remember Paul survived a deadly snake bite. He shook the snake off into the fire. God healed the sick. The only one of these signs not seen in the book of Acts was protection from poisons. Again, these are not phenomena that we should follow. All those hillbilly guys in the Ozarks who read this verse and then toss around rattlesnakes, they're just tempting God. They're not following Mark chapter 16. I don't believe in handling snakes for the sake of handling snakes. But if I'm on a mission trip and I'm in the bush somewhere and I happen to get bitten by a poisonous snake, trust me, the first thing I'm going to do is remind the Lord of this verse. This passage is for folks who are busy sharing the gospel. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What a moment this was. Like a NASA liftoff, Jesus rose into the clouds. 
And Jesus' ascension was not only a spectacle to see. Don't underestimate its theological significance. For Jesus' ascension was God's way of saying that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus conquered all heaven's enemies. And now he takes the exalted place on God's throne. Once there was a little girl, she came home from Sunday school. She told her mom, she said, Mommy, God created the world with his left hand. And he parted the Red Sea with his left hand. And he heals the sick with his left hand. The mom couldn't understand the little girl's fixation on God's left hand. Honey, why does God only use his left hand? The little girl replied, well, my Sunday school teacher says that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. (laughs) And he is sitting at the exalted place next to his father. See, the resurrection was the high point for the disciples. But I believe the ascension was the climax for Jesus himself. Imagine, like a victorious soldier returning home from battle, imagine Jesus entering into the halls of heaven to the applause of a million zillion angels, to the pleasure of his Father. This is my beloved Son. Well done. What a moment that was. Verse 20 closes. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Hey, when the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, his disciples descend, when the Lord ascended to heaven, his disciples descended on this lost world. And I love verse 20. The disciples didn't just work for the Lord, the Lord working with them. He was confirming the word through signs. Guys, this is Christian ministry. It's not just us serving God, but it's us partnering with God. It's us working with God and God working with us. It's us joining forces with God. We work together to fulfill this great commission.